This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all staying warm and enjoying the stark yet beautiful landscapes that the winter brings. Wow, speaking of winter, did we just have a blowout snow-wise. Winter Storm Orlena dumped several feet of snow on most of New England, with areas of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania getting buried in 30 inches, resulting in snow drifts of up to 15 feet in height. And now the weather forecast for northern New England is calling for temperatures in the single digits with even more snow on the way. Get out the toboggans. Despite all of the snow, New England is still experiencing drought and drought-like conditions. 24% of New England is still experiencing abnormally dry conditions, with just over 8% of the region seeing moderate drought conditions. If you follow the maps... You can see the most impacted areas are close to large bodies of water, like rivers and the ocean, with some of the most extreme dryness occurring along the Connecticut River. Why is that? Climatologists are saying we have reached a tipping point regarding impervious surfaces. In other words, there has been so much installation of impervious surfaces, like asphalt parking lots and driveways, that the majority of rainfall is now racing as fast as it can along paved roads and sewers to large bodies of water like the Connecticut River, and is not staying put and soaking into the ground to regenerate the soil and watersheds in our local areas as it normally would do. What goes down must come up. When water is slowed down and held in our yards and communities, it soaks into the soil and condensation occurs, giving us the formation of clouds and local rainstorms. Plenty of rain. Everything grows lush and green. No drought. This is what is called a small water system. When water is sluiced away in high-speed fashion due to all of the asphalt, it instead ends up in rivers in the ocean, and the result is fewer but bigger and deadlier rainstorms that cause flooding, followed by periods of extended drought. You can break the vicious cycle of drought and flooding by slowing down the water on your property. Pull up the asphalt on your driveway and get rid of it. Install rain barrels to catch the overflow from your roof and use it to water the flowers. Create rain gardens to hold rainwater where it falls so it absorbs back into the soil to regenerate the water table. And most importantly, talk to local government officials about development in your area. Voice your concerns about the overabundance of impervious surfaces in your town. And with all of that in mind, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be talking with Ginny Steibolt, botanist and author of five books, including the award-winning book, Climate-Wise Landscaping. We're going to be talking about how to create climate-wise landscaping in our backyards. 
If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Ginny Steibolt. Ginny is a botanist and the author of five gardening books, including the award-winning book Climate-Wise Landscaping, Practical Actions for a Sustainable Future. Ginny, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, we're delighted to have you here today. So we're going to talk a little bit about backyard gardening and gardening for birds. That's right, yeah. And Audubon decided a few years ago that native plants were important for attracting birds to your yard. So we'll talk about that. That is great. Okay. Now, I know you've written several books, but one that really caught my eye was The Climate-Wise Landscaping. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that book and what you cover in it? Sure. Yeah. Um, My other four books are for Florida, particularly. But Sue Reed, who is a landscape architect in Massachusetts, called me up and said, could I be a co-author for this book? Because I'm in Florida, and my background is as a botanist and a gardener. And so we decided that we'd make a good team. So it was an interesting project, and the first project, the first section in the book was lawns, and, you know, rethinking the lawn is the easiest, most significant action that people can take is to stop the poisons in the yard and, and to stop the fertilization of the, of the yard and just let it, let it go. You could still mow it, but it would become a freedom lawn <laughs> instead of one that is highly maintained to try to keep only one kind of turf grass going. So I've had a freedom lawn here in Florida. We moved here in 2004 from Maryland and the landscape guys came by when we moved in and said, Oh, we'll take care of your yard for you. And here's how much it'll cost. And I said, no, thank you. And they said, Oh, it's going to die if we don't take care of it. And I said, that's okay. So since 2004, we've had a lawn that has not had any poisons put on it. No extra fertilizers. Now we've resodded some areas where we take other grass out, but we haven't bought any sod. And it's only about half of what it was before. But the biggest thing that people can do for our planet is to stop stop the high-maintenance lawn care. And it's a carryover from the upper classes from Europe and the British Isles, along with formal gardens. And they had those to show how wealthy they were, but we don't really need to do those. And it's been shown that when you stop fertilizing and stop with the pesticides, and the pesticides on lawns are fungicides and insecticides and herbicides, and that's terrible for the soil underneath. And so when you stop all that, then the soil becomes an ecosystem and can support the plants without all that stuff. So that was the first section. But Sue and I did not debate climate. We just said, okay, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's, what can we do right now? What can normal people do right now? Of course, we'd like our government and environmental organizations to participate in climate-wise actions. But people 
can do things in their own yards and in their own communities. And there's millions and millions of us. <laughs> and so we can make a significant difference. So our goal was to, again, starting with lawns, is to help people figure out what they could do in their yards and in their communities to help the planet. There are things that we can do, and supporting wildlife is one of the things that we had as a goal for a climate-wise landscape. So can you tell our listeners, I mean, in your mind, what would be the perfect way to set up your backyard to be climate-wise and helpful to the birds and the other critters that might come in the yard? There are quite a few things you can do in the backyard. And the backyard is more forgiving than the front yard but we really need to look at the whole yard. One of the people who've made a big difference in native plant, you know, the reasons for using native plants is Doug Tallamy. And he wrote Bringing Nature Home in 2007, and it changed the whole narrative. I joined the Native Plant Society here in Florida two years after I, I moved here. And so at that point, I said, but I moved from what could grow in here to what belongs here. So it changed my whole way of thinking. But it was still a couple of years from then before Doug Tallamy's book said it changed the whole narrative. And now he has the second book. And so if people haven't read those, it, it's a tremendously interesting research that he's done showing that an oak tree has so many more caterpillars than an alien tree, like a ginkgo or something that that doesn't belong in the ecosystem. So what you want to do in your yard, both the backyard and the front yard, is to begin to replace some of those alien plants with natives. Or even if there is a native, that you can create sort of a grove around it. A very common landscape, default landscape here in Florida and actually several states farther north is for the developers to plunk a magnolia tree in the center of the lawn. Well, the magnolias lose their leaves all year long. So it's a tremendous amount of maintenance. But if you built a grove around that lawn tree with native azaleas and other acid-loving plants, then the tree will be healthier since it's not competing with the lawn. And you would have actually created something that would have less maintenance required from you eventually. And so all those darn leathery leaves would fall into your grove with your shrubs and everything that you've planted under it so that it's much easier to maintain. And the soil will be more healthy. It will become more drought tolerant. It will become more wind tolerant, which is important here in Florida where we've got hurricanes. So if you have a mound around a tree, then that tree is less vulnerable to being blown over. And the roots can go out further so that it will be more drought tolerant as well. In the backyard, I would suggest taking the back 10 feet or the back corners, depending upon the lot size, and build a stick pile where it's not landscaped at all. So if, as sticks fall off or you're doing pruning or whatever, then you just put them in a pile in the back corner there and just let them sit there. And so those sticks are going to end up being hiding places for birds. 
They're going to be food for insects, which then in turn be food for the birds. And also in an area where there is no landscaping, no lawn, not even a freedom lawn, then that the soil under those sticks ends up being good habitat for our native bees. And most of our native bees are brown nesters. They don't have hives. So those wasps and those bees are wonderful predators in our yard. But you couldn't have those if your yard is poisoned with insecticides. So the first step for a bird-friendly yard is to stop the landscape-wide poisons. It's better for us as people, better for our pets, better for our children, better for our pocketbook. (laughs) (laughs) and good for the birds. So, you know, there's a win-win-win-win-win situation. I'd take the back 10 feet or so and just put in natives so that the birds, and, and it should be not all the same thing. So there should be some trees, some shrubs, some herbaceous plants like bunching grasses and that kind of thing. So it's a mixture because the habitat is going to be much better if there is a transition between a wooded area and your mowed area or your ground cover area so that 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 actually supports more animals, more wildlife than just one kind of habitat. That's also when you build a grove around the tree, you're doing the same thing. You're creating a transition zone to go from a tree to a meadow kind of thing, a shrub layer and then a meadow kind of thing. So around the edges, you would have ground covers. When you plant it, you have to adjust it. You have to irrigate it. You have to take care of it. You have to make sure that it ends up establishing itself. But then you need to think about what the neighbors are seeing when you start maintaining your yard differently. And when you create native ecosystem spots in your yard, then some of the neighbors with those greener than green lawns may think that your yard is weedy, or they may think that you're not taking care of it. So you need to do a little bit of outreach. And one of the things that I did is I I got our property certified with the Wildlife uh, Federation And so I have now a certified yard sign at the front corner. So out in the front, there used to be sodded lawn all around out front in front of a pond. And it was a meadow. We kept it as a meadow where we dug out the trees for several years. And and it bloomed with St. John's worts all winter. And and it it was really lovely. But and there are other signs that you can get that say, oh, native plants bring this landscape to life. Or I like my children better than, than a lawn. So there are no poisons in this lawn. So there's a, there are a variety of signs that you can use that let the neighbors know that you're doing this on purpose. I do presentations on a fairly regular basis and I use some photos that I took at Belfast Castle in Ireland with its highly maintained garden with topiaries of the castle cat and all kinds of fancy, very high maintenance garden beds and and a beautiful lawn and everything. And I use that 
as the example of what the upper class did. Of course, that castle now is a public venue. And, and one day when we were there, the day we were there, they were going to have a wedding later. So it's become a business rather than just some wealthy landowner's abode. And the expense is, is immense to keep a castle in good shape. But we have been expected across the ocean, that expectation to have the highly maintained landscape with a perfect lawn. And so that's been brought over as what our yards should look like. And so I've been working very hard to fight that image that we don't need that. But if you look at a big box store or many other garden centers, we are offered plants in full bloom, marigolds and impatiens and all kinds of mostly non-native plants that people can plant in their yards or plant at the, at the gates of their communities to have a formal looking thing with rows of begonias and rows of this and rows of that. And then, it, and then in a couple of months, they need to be replaced again. So as a botanist, I can tell you that that little flat of marigolds, which are native to Mexico, are at the end of their life cycle. They germinated, they produced flowers, they grew, they produced seeds, and as far as the plant is concerned, it has completed its life mission. So when we take those pretty flowers home, it's a downhill slide normally. And so we're expected to have that perfect landscape, just like Belfast Castle, except that we don't have all the myriad of, of gardeners to do that work for us. And so as native plant enthusiasts, we can say, so if you do a native border there, you just leave it there. So you only have to pay for it once and it establishes itself. So you may have to refresh in the, doing the research for climate-wise landscaping, I was the main writer on the soil section. And so our soils sequester four times more carbon than all the trees in the world. So the summary of that chapter is we have to stop treating our soil like dirt. <laughs> so, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting situation. So when you put in a more permanent perennial border with bunching grasses and, and long-lived perennials, you are also helping your soil sequester that carbon. So can we just get back to those pesky neighbors again, those neighbors who have real difficulty understanding what native gardeners are trying to do? I mean, 10 years ago, when I started planting natives, you know, a, a lot of my friends who are also native enthusiasts were doing what we call covert native gardening. We were planting natives in the backyard undercover, so to speak, and that by playing the game in the front yard by having the lawn and doing the mowing and trying not to stir up hostility with the neighbors next door and across the street. But now yeah. over those last 10 years, I'm seeing, you know, my, you know, myself, I've officially killed my lawn and turned it into a, a native meadow. A lot of my friends are also, you know, being, I would say, very daring in starting to show what they're actually trying to do. You know, so besides this, this sign, which I think is a great idea, putting the sign from the National Wildlife Federation out on the edge so your neighbor can see, what are some other strategies for dealing with a neighbor who is totally caught up in this conspicuous consumption, wants to stick to established norms and, and complains about 
property values. And, you know, we've had some real doozies here, you know, in our town who are just, just want every yard in the front to look the same. Uniform, green lawn, literally right off a golf course, totally right. sterile landscape. What can we say to those people to help them understand we're trying to help? Well, the outreach is important. When you do talk to people or people from your town or your city or homeowners association boards and that kind of thing, we need to be, I, I have a rule of P's. So you need to be polite. You need to be persistent. You need to give them praise. So if they've made any tiny little advance in growing wildflowers around the town hall or something like that, you tell them, oh, that's a good step in the right direction. You need to be on time so that you, you would be punctual. And so I have this whole list of, of the rules of peace that getting belligerent and getting angry, even if they're angry at you, doesn't work. So we need to be polite and we need to say, well, that, that's, that's an old-fashioned idea to have a lawn like that. So, you know, I want the birds. And I think that birds are probably the key to having a charismatic character brought into the argument. I'm not poisoning my lawn because I want birds in my yard. My kids are now bird watchers. And if I poison the lawn, then the birds aren't going to come. And so, and it would be the same with butterflies. So those are your charismatic excuses <laughs> that everybody can understand that if you want birds and if you want butterflies, and you probably don't want to talk about the native bees to people like that, then that's something they can understand. Even in an HOA, you can have a native yard. In an HOA, you may have to trim it more than you would like, but at least it would be native. An interesting side note as far as Florida goes, when Ponce de Leon came to Florida 500 years ago, he named it La Florida, which is the land of flowers. But the first thing that the Europeans did was try to make it look more like Europe. And so even though he named it for the native habitat, La Florida, they brought in oleanders and they brought in all kinds of other stuff from the Mediterranean to transform Florida to something it wasn't. And, you know, my goal is to have Florida be the real Florida again <laughs> and to highlight native plants as the ideal rather than as the outlier. Right now, I have six rain barrels in our yard because I also grow vegetables. And our best season for growing vegetables is through the winter when it's our dry season. So even though we get 50 inches of rain a year or so, most of it's in the summer. And if I want to grow the broccoli and the cabbages and the lettuces and, and carrots and stuff like that, they go right through the winter here. And so this is our best growing season. I have broccoli that's ready to pick out in the yard right now. But it's the dry season. So those six rain barrels do a pretty good job of holding me through so I, I don't have to use the tap water. The other problem with tap water in the garden or to water your plants is that it's been purified so that we don't get sick. And so the purifiers in the tap water 
will poison the microbes in your soil or in your compost. And, and we have a water section in our climate-wise landscaping book. And there is another cost to water that comes to our taps. And one is the energy to get it to our tap with enough pressure so we can take a shower. And so when you save water, you're also saving the energy. If you're saving the, on the municipal water, you're also saving on the energy that was used to pump it up to the top of a water tower so you could take a shower or to push it through so that we would have enough pressure. So I'd never even considered energy savings as part of the reason why we need to save our municipal water. It just didn't ever occur to me. Nobody talks about it. That is another climate-wise reason to collect the water. And yes, I mean, any water that goes out into the street will carry with it poisons from or drippage from our cars or vehicles. It will also carry debris. And, and if, if you poison your or fertilize your landscape, that gets carried out too. And it all ends up in our waterways. So if you take that first flush of water and store it in rain barrels, then it actually improves the nearby waterways so that that ecosystem can be maintained more. And also, if we have enough people sequestering the water, then that would also save municipalities from having to expand on their storm drain systems because we are getting more deluges as well as more droughts. And so because there's more deluges, then they need to expand the stormwater drains. But if everybody has some rain barrels, then they can postpone that. Just switching back to insects, it really seems to be like a war on bugs in the United States. You know, when you walk into a big box store, you just see shelves and shelves of sprays, pellets, huge two-gallon containers that you can put into a, a spraying mechanism. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a multi-billion dollar business killing insects. But I think a lot of people don't realize that when they go in their yard and they start spraying, you know, like if someone sees a leaf being chewed on, they don't realize that that's butterfly larva eating the leaf so they can turn into a butterfly. And they end up killing a lot of wildlife in their yard. Well, that, that's exactly right. And so a lot of people who are aware are trying to stop with the poisons, but then common advice is, well, if you have aphids on your milkweeds, then you can just spray it with soapy, a soapy mixture. But you would never spray soap on a plant because it would dissolve the waxy cuticle. So the plants, all terrestrial plants have a waxy cuticle that protects them from insect damage, from drought, and other damage from wind and, and that, that kind of thing, desiccation. So when you put soap on a waxy cuticle, it dissolves that. And when it dissolves, then the plant will become more susceptible to aphids and other herbivores. So you would never put soap on a plant. The soil probably can take it okay because it, 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 you know, there's enough microbes there that to take care of it. But the plant is going to be left with fewer defenses if you spray soap on it. But yeah, I mean, it is a big business. The poisoning of, of insects is a big business. 
there is a poison cycle. And so if you have a pest insect and you spray it, you kill the bugs that are there right then. But then you also either kill the beneficial insects that would have eaten it, and you would chase away your toads or your birds or bats and other things that would have eaten those because there's nothing for them to eat. So you have basically chased away or killed all the predators that Mother Nature would have provided. And so then the pest bug comes back worse than ever because there are no predators left because you have poisoned them or chased them away. And it's a never-ending cycle. And so then the bugs get resistant to a particular pesticide. And so then the people doing the poisoning, quite often it's the lawn guys doing the poisoning, say, oh, well, we need to change your change the concentration or we need to change which insecticide to use because the bugs are now resistant to this. It's a never-ending cycle. So as sustainable gardeners and bird-friendly gardeners, we need to just allow Mother Nature to do her work. And if the aphids seem to be too thick for your tastes, rinse them off with water. That's it. Just water. Better yet, though, is to let them stay because plants can can deal with them. They've been dealing with them for millions of years. <laughs> and then you wait for the ladybugs. A ladybug in its short life cycle can eat 5,000 aphids. And you need to know what the ladybug larvae look like. They look like little alligators. They don't look like a ladybug. They look bad. They look like bad bugs, but they are the beneficial ones. There's assassin bugs. There's all kinds of things. And as we talked about, there are the wasps and the native bees that are taking bugs and feeding them to the young. And there are the birds that will take those insects. So poison introduced into your landscape will change all that and will make it so that your yard is not bird-friendly at all because there's nothing there for the birds to eat. So we need to break the poison cycle as part of our climate-wise, bird-friendly-wise yards. I want to thank Ginny Steibel for joining us today. You can order her books on her blog site at greengardeningmatters.blogspot.com, including her award-winning book, Climate-Wise Landscaping. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now for more of my personal story. The trial of fire continued. I quickly learned about the biology and behavior of aquatic birds. Aquatic birds like pelicans, gulls, terns, cormorants, grebes, loons, and hingas, and my favorite, the magnificent frigate bird, present quite a challenge in the clinical setting. This is because after millions of years, they have adapted to a life spent almost exclusively on the water. 
Most of these species cannot tolerate being placed on a surface harder than water without developing serious medical consequences, like lesions on the hawk's feet and the keel. Keel lesions can easily grow chronically infected and are very hard to treat, often resulting in ulceration and necrosis, or tissue death, which can lead to a fatality. This is because the keel is put under prolonged, abnormal, weight-bearing stress on hard surfaces. Birds may have already developed keel lesions before even arriving at the rehabilitation center because they have beached themselves on sand due to a debilitating disease or injury. Treating a patient starts with containment, and that housing must be quiet, comfortable, and safe. This is imperative, so we don't end up treating not just the original injury, but also any injury that could result from captivity-related mishaps, like keel lesions. It is challenging, since many injuries require dry docking or removing the bird from water for extended periods of time so that wounds can heal properly. We apply keel protectors made from soft foam and cloth, which are designed to bolster the bird's keel and protect it from harm during the initial dry dock stage. As the bird heals, the determination is then made to place the bird in a water pool for longer and longer periods of time until it is ready to go back to the wild. And that, of course, is the best part of my job. When the day arrives to finally release the bird, and I can drive the bird back to the ocean where he belongs and set him free. To hold the seabird in my hands and then release my grip so the bird can fly off over the waves is always exhilarating, even after all these years. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.